Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Alohomora, the new podcast brought to you by the staff of MuggleNet.com and Harry Potter fans all over the world. This is episode two for May 6th, 2012. I'm Caleb Graves. And I'm Kat Miller. And our guest fan this week is Meg Velasco, who actually hails from Muhlenberg College, just like me. Right now she's studying in Ireland. She's an English major with a concentration in narratology and Irish Irish drama. So without further ado, Meg. Hi, everybody. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks for, for having me. What's Ireland like? Cold and wet. Oh. It's right now. We get a few sunny days here and there, but mostly it's rain. And very green. That's putting it mildly. Oh, okay. <laughs> would you say super that, green? Would Would you say that uh, there's some Irish myth in Harry Potter? Um, yeah, I think um, Rowling has a lot of Irish influence because she lives in the UK. So it'd be interesting to see what she's got in there. Great, well, we're excited to hear what you have to say. Well, thanks. It's going to be a bold new perspective. Should right. be interesting for the show. All right. So we launched the show last week, and little did we know, thousands all over the world would tune in, and uh, you know. It's just been, it's been lining up. We've launched a Tumblr site that's uh, instantly been getting views. We asked fans to submit images of their old copies of Philosopher's Stone just because uh, this, this whole project is about reading the books, starting from the beginning and analyzing them. And on, on this uh, episode, we're going to analyze chapters four through six of Philosopher's Stone. And already on our companion website, where fans can discuss the series, we already have about 1,800 constant readers in there and in the forums. They're lighting up. So we're just really happy we started this, and you know it's gotten a little, a lot of uh, support and love from all over the world, and we're gonna, we're gonna keep going with it. So let's begin the discussion this week. So in our first episode, you guys listened in as we jumped back into the Sorcerer's Stone, and as Noah just mentioned, we went through the first three chapters, and we went back to the story of Harry growing up, weird things happening to him, and we met the Dursleys all over again. And we threw a lot of discussion points out in the show, and we left some questions for you guys to ponder on the website. And Noah, did you get some pretty good responses uh, looking through those questions? Uh, yeah, we did. We got like 24 responses. And uh, let, me, let me just bring us back to what the question was. Um, being that in the last few chapters, we had Vernon Dursley, a muggle, you know, valiantly trying to take Harry away from all the magic influence that was surrounding him as, they were, as Hogwarts was actively trying to give him his letter. You know, Vernon 
took him to an island, took the whole family there. And I was just, I really was wondering. We know that in the seven, over the course of the seven books that Joe is all about going towards equality or bringing groups of people together because even though, even though there's all this difference by the end of the books, there is this, uh, there's this want for the houses to get together for, you know, pure bloods and, uh, and half-bloods and even muggle-borns to sort of join in a way just as humans. And I, and I wanted to know, considering Vernon Dursley and he is uh, completely inept at stopping magic, possibility that muggles and, and magic folk can ever join, you know, under, considering they're both humankind, can they ever truly uh, find a peace? And uh, the general consensus online is that no. In fact, the, the world's just too different. The power that, that magic, you know, magic holders have is, is simply too much, and it would, it would really be impossible. You know, some, some fans were saying that it, it might be possible, you know, they're all humans, they could, they could learn from each other. Well, you know, we even made some funny points in the last show about how muggles know math, and maybe, which is in Wizards Don't, really. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the general consensus was they should stay separate because they're, they're clearly, you know, the, the power struggle would be too much. Now, now, let's revisit this again, you guys. What do you, what do you think about this? Uh, especially Meg, you, you didn't get to answer this last time. Especially with the muggle world uh, mixing with the wizarding world, I think there's too much animosity between them at this point. Because we have people like Vernon continually saying, like, you know, I, you shouldn't be weird like them. But then we have mentions, and we'll talk about this later, I'm sure, um, the term muggle is such an offensive word as much as Vernon is calling them yeah. freaks. Oh, yeah. So and of, it's, and of course, it's definitely uh, something to look at. Yeah, and we're going to see that Vernon, in, in the next chapter, has just so much fear of anything magical. And this would reflect a lot of, you know, muggles' intentions. I mean, think of a... Salem Witch Trials, which actually are part of the history mm. of the Harry Potter universe. There's just so much fear of the, of the other. And uh, maybe, it, maybe it goes both ways to an extent. I, I don't really know. but It's a mutual xenophobia floating around. Yeah. And uh, of, course, of course, this struggle really speaks to race issues that, that Joe's kind of playing with. We'll talk about that later as well. What do mm-hmm. the rest of you think? Well, there's a there's a great comment on here. Um, it was made on alohomora.mugglenet.com by username Snooge, I think. If I pronounced it wrong, I apologize. Um, it says that the Muggle Prime Minister was also aware of the Wizarding World, one of the very few Muggles unrelated to a witch or wizard to have this knowledge. And while he may have been perhaps exasperated or worried about the events that may be related to the Wizarding World, and would perhaps rather be in the state of ignorance. There was nothing mentioned to suggest that he disliked the wizarding world as people. I just thought it was a really interesting comment that he pretty much tolerates it because he has to. Right. And I think that that's, you know, what some people would do. Because, the, because you know, what is the alternative? What would the society be like if they were just uh, hanging out with each other? So we've asked you in following with this podcast to submit some content to the site and, uh, Especially with that, we've uh, artwork and essays. We also want some some questions or some different points. And we've actually had a few members of the forums who've been actively participating. And here's one comment from Snape Escape. At one point in the podcast, you mentioned how Dumbledore sort of comes across as the ultimate leader that no one really thinks to contradict. Many people just take his word for it because he is Albus Dumbledore, renowned genius. McGonagall seems in awe of him from the very first chapter where she says, but you're different. Everyone knows you're the only one you know who was frightened of. I just wanted to broach the question. Is Dumbledore overly glorified in the books? Is he given too much credit for what he has achieved, and does he deserve all this merit? Or is he more, for want of a better word, actually more normal than we expected? 
He is able to make mistakes and overlook certain facts. That's a good question. It is a good question. And I think at, at this point in the book, we know so little about Dumbledore and his past. I mean, it's not until really the last couple chapters of the last book in the whole series that we learn so much about Dumbledore. So, I mean, at this point for me, I think maybe he's not overly glorified. I think that he is just perceived as being extraordinary, very smart, very special. Yeah, I would agree. I think, you know, he's this somewhat mysterious figure to us at at this point in the book. Um, Sort of exhibits these, like you mentioned, extraordinary qualities um, that we'll sort of get a better idea about later at this point. I think it's a little early for us to know. Remember that. Remember that one line where he is. Uh, what what Snape escape actually brings up the fact that Dumbledore was the only one that Voldemort ever feared. So we know that Voldemort is this ultimate evil. So that does potentially set up Dumbledore as this ultimate good, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. I agree. But which is we a- still don't know. Yeah, we still don't know that much about him. No. Now, what would you say coming from the the standpoint of having read all the books? You know, not going into too much detail. Would you say that Dumbledore is, a, is more of a human character, or does he really reflect this godlike power? Oh, no. He, he is so human, it's not even funny. He, it, it's proven by the end of the books that he makes a lot of mistakes often. But he learns from them, which I think not all people do. Interesting. I, I think the point, of the, the point of the matter here is, though, he is so humanized, but he's set up here in the very beginning as this ultimate good. So I think it definitely shows that even people with flaws um, have the capability to become the end-all, be-all of good. Yeah, I like that a lot. It, it is our choices, Harry. It's yeah, our choices that, that re- that theme of that theme of uh, redemption, you know, plays a lot with a lot of the characters, and it definitely plays a lot for Dumbledore. That, and that's huge, and it's actually, you know, that's one of the big points of the book. So really. To all of, all of you followers, you can you can be good. It's just a matter of choice. It's not it's not a matter of if you're if you have virtue from birth or not. I, I'd say that's right. that's uh, that's her general belief about it. Okay, so here we have another comment about the podcast in regards to something we we're talking about uh, about how magic in, in smaller children before they go to Hogwarts, like you know when Harry can suddenly do magic when he's on top of the kitchens, just in when any when any sort of youngling presents magic in a weird way and it's unexplainable and it's without a wand. So we asked the we asked the listeners to wonder why this where this came from and how they how they could do it. So here's one comment from Sirius Snuffles. About the manifestation of magic in children, I think it depends on how often terrible things happen to them and how often they have bad or scared emotions and need magic to survive. Harry and Tom Riddle both had awful childhoods and magic presented itself to them early, probably to help them survive. It also probably depends on self-confidence and if you knew magic existed or not in the beginning. Neville, of course, is so unconfident that he couldn't use magic early on. Mmm, that's good. Great comment, Sirius Snuffles. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's true, although Harry didn't know anything about magic, I mean, and he was still using it, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure about that. I think... Maybe he knew deep down that he was special in some way, but the Dursleys had so stamped it out of him that he just, he didn't believe it. I don't know. No, I don't think that's what Sirius Snuffles is saying. I'm saying, I I think he's, he or she is right in saying that it comes out in a desperate situation if you are magic. 
like whether you know about it or not, but the the idea of having known it or not can present like difficulty in bringing it out. Like in the case of Neville, the uh, Sirius Snuffles argued that there was so much pressure by his grand to like do some magic that he he really couldn't like all the time. It's until... so it was suppressed almost. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, until it's mean, think, and Neville's like correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the story is that his first um, like use of magic is when like he's thrown out the window or something, and, and he, he bounces. And he yeah. bounces, yeah. So that kind of plays into what um, this this user is saying. You know, these sort of drastic situations where you know what? magic is yeah. sort of necessary. Man, why does this always happen to Neville? Oh. <laughs> I know, poor kid. And poor his kid. parents were like mentally deranged from youth and like almost dead inside. That sucks. Yeah. Huh. He had a rough childhood. No. Well, at least he knows how to bounce. Didn't help That's us. right. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So we want to thank everyone for the awesome comments we've been getting on the forums. Please go there, alohomora.mogulnet.com slash forum, and put in your comments anything from any show we've ever we've ever put out, anything we've ever talked about. There's lots of discussions going on We're right gonna, now. Yeah, exactly. And we love reading them. And we even engage in the conversations with you. And if you if you say a lot of cool stuff, we're gonna we're probably gonna invite you on the show. So absolutely. So with that, let's jump right into this week's discussion. We're gonna be discussing Philosopher's Stone chapters four through six, and we are starting with chapter four, the Keeper of the Keys. So at the end of chapter three, we find Harry and the Dursleys camping out on the hut in the rock, and literally the minute Harry turns eleven, the minute it is his birthday, there's a huge boom at the door. Do you think there's a significance of the fact that a giant of a man has broken down the door at exactly midnight? I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's just a lot for dramatic effect. I mean, you know, there's the noise leading up to it. Harry's excited for his birthday, um, even though he doesn't think it's going to be a very big one. Um, I mean, it's pretty, it's built up pretty well for this, you know, huge momentous event to happen, you know, right at midnight, no later, no sooner. And, you know, it enters with a bang, quite literally, in this you know, huge actually, guy. Comes actually, in and... actually, it's so it's just a really good. It was a good cliffhanger, a chap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My bad, my bad. Boom, not bang. It's a boom. So. Notice the use of automatopia here. This is very, this is very <laughs> clever. You don't get it much in the later books, but uh, this is uh, this one was for eleven-year-olds. So did did any of you think immediately that this large man was Hagrid, who we you know were introduced to back in chapter one? I thought Harry and the Dursleys were about to die, frankly. But, uh, that's just no, I, I, I didn't, you know, put make that connection. Um, I had, thinking back to the first time I read it, I think I'd pretty much forgotten about Hagrid at this point and was so wrapped up in what was happening with Harry that I didn't even make the connection until he introduced himself as Hagrid. This is the first time you read it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I have to agree. The first time I read it, I was ter- like, okay, I was like nine or ten, but I was terrified, and I seriously, like, you see this giant of a man come in, you think, oh my god, he's going to either harm the Dursleys, which I was okay with, <laughs> um, or he's going to kidnap Harry. It's, it's not a good association. In, in fact, this first. could have become a much darker book in which a child, his parents are, are killed, and then he grows up and he's abused his entire life until a strange man finds him at sea and eats him. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Puts him in his coat. Puts him in his pocket. Just... Puts him in one of his numerous pockets and flies off into the night. Terrible. So this, so this can be like one of those alternate fandom books, kind of like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Oh, Hunter. gosh. 
No. I mean, okay. I, I no, can I see that happening. I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah. Have a mashup going. What's that? Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. That's right. And zombies. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Hagrid cool. is, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the yeah. fir- the first line that Hagrid um, even directs at Harry, except for, you know, the obvious greeting, is that he looks just like his dad, but has his mother's eyes. Did anyone see any significance in this at all? I mean, obviously we learn much later that it's incredibly significant. It repeats. But... It repeats over and over again, especially the eyes. Yes, this is the first of many, many times we hear this. And I think that's why it's significant. It's the first time that Harry comes to terms with with being a wizard, and, you know, Hagrid immediately draws that connection between Harry and his magical parents, which sharply contrasts. Um, but even even deeper than that, it's like a, a connection with his parents. He's never had it his entire life, and suddenly in this first sentence, he is identified with his father and his mother, which for an 11-year-old who is like an orphan must be huge on a personal level. You know what that's I mean? true. I, that's true. I hadn't thought of that. He'd never, I mean, he knows so little about them. How is he to know what what they look like exactly yeah that's what i'm thinking like the first thing he's told is what his parents look like he's been denied information his whole life and he doesn't get a story he doesn't get like oh your parents are great people he gets oh you look like them i don't even think he got I that think, i think that's I interesting think he, well maybe he got that a little but it was also just that they died in the in the car crash and he was forbid to ask any other questions yeah but either way like the first information he's getting is this physical very basic level of his parents he's not getting who they were as a person just he resembles them physically and i think that's drawing him like he's very connected blood wise to his parents now by doing that and we, yeah and we know how significant the blood is right of course eyes so are then, the window uh, to the soul that's right <laughs> so then vernon uh <laughs> tries to stand up to hagrid with hilarious results this i i love this part of the book and even in the movie it's it's pretty hilarious. I thought it was terrible. Terrible. This was the this was the valorous scene where Vernon, against all odds, is trying to protect his family. And you know, he doesn't love Harry, but he's still trying to protect Harry from this strange giant man who has broken down the door and is screaming. It, you know, I think we we have to remember that Hagrid doesn't really understand. I mean, not Hagrid. Vernon Dursley doesn't understand the full measure of to what depths. Uh, the magical world is willing to go to, to get him. I mean, he knows about it, but what if in the scene he's also protecting his family and, and Harry to some degree out of some weird love that, like, this is my property in a way and you have to, this is weird, you have to get out of here. No way is he protecting Harry. Think about I, it. He is purely out. No way. No, I don't, I don't think so at all. I think that this is just another attempt for him to squash it out of him. I don't think, I don't think he cares about him at all. Do you think if, like, one of the Malfoys or Bellatrix were to come and pull the same thing, like, oh, you're a wizard, come with me, would he, would he have reacted the same way? Well, they're, not quite a, they're not quite as trusting looking, are they? Yeah, I well, guess. okay, say they act trustworthy. They put on the Hagrid Act. I don't know, guys. I feel like uh, if they really didn't care about Harry, why did they take him in on the, in the first place? Why didn't they just leave him on the doorstep? Because I th- because I think Petunia had love for Lily. I don't think she cares for Harry at all. Yeah, no, but that's the the uh, the Fidelia's charm. The the reason that it works and Harry's protected is because there's some element of love there, even if uh, it's like really hidden. Well, I think there's a difference between like them having this like familial care and like some sense of obligation. I don't think that you know Lily, um, excuse me, Petunia would 
I don't think she, even though as much um, as she detested, like, Lily being different, I don't think she could live with herself if she put Harry out on the streets and didn't, like, have that some sort of obligation toward taking care of him. Yeah, I agree. I I think there's a a part of Petunia, uh, albeit probably a very small part, that is probably very nice and very caring. I mean, we see that, like you said last time, Noah, she really does care about Dudley, albeit in the wrong way. But. Well, well, I mean, spoiling, it, and it does cause some damage. But then again, right. mm-hmm. some other stuff does too, which I will bring up later. <laughs> right, exactly. So Hagrid proceeds to ask for a cup of tea, and he starts pulling things out of this humongous overcoat. I mean, tea kettles, sausages, a teapot, mugs, you know, an amber liquid, and even an owl. I mean, even some dormice in there. Yeah, I mean, how how big? I mean, we know Hagrid is big, but... Wouldn't this cult be kind of bulky? From Snape Escape. I made a little observation based on Hagrid's introduction to Harry. One of the first things Hagrid does is take out all these magical objects. No, all these objects. Sausages, kettle, cake, even an owl from his big coat to the amazement of Harry. This very much reminded me of Mary Poppins and her seemingly never-ending bag. And this got me thinking that Hagrid is similar to Mary Poppins in other ways, too. He's the first to really show Harry magic when he gives Dudley his pigtail like Mary Poppins did with the two children. I'm thinking of that banister scene and when she floats down from the cloud. He also brings Harry into another world like Mary Poppins does with those sketched pictures on the ground. What's more, they are both protective of the child under their care and obviously care for them. I thought that was great. I mean, I had never I had never Mary thought Poppins. of that before. I mean, um, I'm actually going to admit that I haven't seen Mary Poppins the whole way through. What? I know, what? it's a travesty. <laughs> Don't hate me, please. Don't hate me, but um. Just wait do, until the, do, just wait until the fans get after you now. So. I know. Uh, my Twitter handle. My Twitter handle is no. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do know about her and who she is, and I had never, I had never thought of this before. So out of the things here, um, Hagrid pulls out of his coat. There's some sausages, and he starts to fry them up. And there's finally kind of life in the hut and. He offers some to Harry, and Dudley kind of makes a move like he wants to eat some, and Vernon tells him, don't you dare eat anything that he gives you. Uh, Did Vernon really think that Hagrid's food was poisoned or bad in any way, or is this just his way of saying that he doesn't need or want anything from him? I'm going to argue that point a bit. I don't think he necessarily thought it was poisoned or anything, but I think he's under the assumption that anything that Hagrid touches could have... He treats wizarding like... A disease, almost. And if Dudley were to eat that, he'd kind of be infected with the weird. Um, if we're going to go, like, the whole archetypal route, uh, drawing up the Persephone myth, where Persephone has to remain in the underworld with Hades because she ate the food of the dead, he could possibly think, if Dudley eats the sausage, he'll have to go to Hogwarts with Harry. Huh, that that would be his worst nightmare, I guess. I, I see oh, where you're goodness. coming from, yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely got that old myth type of feel like you don't take food from strangers or they take you away because you do that um i know you see it in a lot of movies uh the one i'm thinking of right now is uh 10th kingdom and they're with a bunch of gypsies and they say take everything they give you but don't eat it or you'll have to go with them yeah and uh actually meg and i were also in an irish studies class i might as well bring up and uh go ahead there was a (laughs) Um, there would be, ma- you know, in Irish myth, there are all these magical creatures, and where there's a magical creature, there's also a community of, you know, uh, a human population that are 
actively scared of them because there's always a threat that these magical creatures will, will come out of the sea or out of, out of nature somewhere and, and steal children or they'll, uh, I don't know, they'll woo the women. And just this sort of fear of anything magical is also, it's in, it's in a ton of different cultures. And uh, we, can, we can certainly read uh, Hagrid as this beast-like thing, un, unhuman, coming in and invading the, uh, the Dursleys, who we, as we know, are so normal it hurts. If we're going the Irish route again as well, um, there's always the myth of the wee folk around here that um, you're never supposed to eat their food or go to their festivals because they'll um, keep you there for 50 years and you'll never see the people you loved ever again. So I think, again, they live in the UK. This could be a myth they've heard as children. And so they have fear of eating food from any of these magical type of folk. Yeah. And Hagrid is the biggest of the wee children, of the wee people. Anyway, it was a cool, really cool connection, Meg, and we want to keep trying to bring like new lenses and stuff, and I just think it's really awesome that we could use this. Sorry for going a little English major. Oh, no, please. That's what you're here for. <laughs> please do. Oh. So, um, Hagrid reacts quite loudly and is very offended by the fact that the Dursleys didn't tell Harry all about his past, his parents, and even Hogwarts. However, didn't Dumbledore say that Harry would be better off not knowing? That was a part of his reasoning for placing him with the Dursleys, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I think Hagrid may, you know, may have thought as Harry got older, you know, the Dursleys would would give him something of an answer. You know, he would naturally ask about his parents' past. But I mean, well, clearly, you know, the Dursleys don't really fulfill this for him. I thought I thought it was necessary, like absolutely necessary. I mean, these are these are you know valiant witches and was uh, Lily and James. I mean, they always fought for the good, and um. I'm even willing to bet that when Hagrid was a gamekeeper, obviously, obviously they were friends with him. They probably treated him very nicely. So they were deep personal friends to him in the order and while they were students at Hogwarts. So a perfectly normal reaction. Even though Dumbledore said that Harry would be better off not growing up knowing all this information? Yeah, I mean, I just think that, you know, Hagrid may have expected him to not know a lot of information, but that he would... You know, he would know at least something. But, you know, then again, you know, thinking back to what what's actually said in the text, you know, Hagrid's surprised he doesn't know about Hogwarts and, you know, more magical things, which, you know, thinking back to what you mentioned, it's pretty much what Dumbledore, you know, wanted Harry to not know. So there is a bit of inconsistency there. Now, thinking more on it, I am a little surprised that Hagrid is um, surprised himself at that. But, I mean, yeah. the good thing is Harry does know how to do math. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a really important skill, so. Um, Keen wizarding skill. Yeah, exactly. So on, on page 50 of the U.S. edition, it says here that Uncle Vernon, who had gone very pale, whispering something that sounded like mimble wimble. And I thought this was this was great. Actually, Noah pointed this out to me. Thank you. Um, it's a spell that is brought up later in the books that prevents the opponent from accurately casting their spell. Uh, is this merely coincidence, or is this yet another clever foreshadowing by Joe? Or does Vernon this... secretly know magic? <laughs> I mean, I think this is brilliant. I, I mean, I'm so glad you pointed this out. I didn't even think about this, but I think it's it's um, our brilliant author, you know, playing um, something we see later, and also the fact that you know Vernon is you know trying to use it with. Uh, I mean, obviously he's not trying to like do a spell because he wouldn't know, but he's. I mean, it's what he's trying to do. He's trying to stop, you know, magic because he hates it so much. And it's pretty much what the what the spell is for. 
I think it's just so clever. But doesn't it kind of work? Because Haggard later on says when um, he gave the pigtail to Dudley that, oh, I was intending to turn him into a pig entirely, but he just gave him the tail. So did Vernon inadvertently stop his son from being turned completely into a pig? Huh, do you think that that would work? I mean, he's a muggle, so he yeah. has no magical ability. No, that, no, what if he does? Just... <laughs> what if he does? Meg, you just pointed something out. Unheard oh, of. God. Unheard of in the Harry Potter fandom. <laughs> Vernon Dursley, oh, no. wizard. Well, I guess what what Hagrid's justification is that he was already so much of a pig, there wasn't much left to turn. But <laughs> and also we should men- we should also mention that uh, Hagrid is using the two pieces of his broken wand inside of his umbrella, which is going to create not perfect magic. Yep. So- Supposedly, I mean, okay. there's never been confirmation Supposedly. on that. Oh, see, yeah, that's, his- that's true. His magic isn't super. It's it's not working. He doesn't have the whole thing going. It's he, he did only make it to his third year, yeah. so. Well, it's either that or Vernon is the most pow- is one of the most secret powerful wizards in London. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hagrid keeps calling him a great muggle, and he uses it quite offensively, kind of, you know, almost as though muggles are beneath wizards. And we know that there are families who truly believe that, but yeah. did this taint anyone's view of muggles in the series, or were you only able to kind of directly relate it to the Dursleys? Can I just jump in real quick? I thought great muggle was uh, in reference to his weight. Great oh, muggle. Really? Fat. Yeah, I, I oh. think maybe. Because, like, he kept talking about how fat uh, Dudley was. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, what is a great muggle like you going to do? Like, great, like, he's heavy. Fat guy. Like, rotund. Oh, very rotund. Huh. Interesting. I never read it that way, but, I mean, it's definitely yeah. possible. I mean, other Okay, well, we'll say he was using it in a demeaning fashion. I mean, yeah, I never really saw it as completely representative of all muggles. Um,. You know, especially as we hear later Hagrid, you know, talking about how some muggle-born wizards and witches, particularly Lily, you know, are great um, workers of magic. So I don't think, you know, this is Hagrid's full view of muggles, probably just a more localized uh, perspective. Um, And I guess it makes sense that if he was calling him a great muggle because he was overweight, I mean, I never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's almost kind of demeaning. Like, you were talking in the first episode how Vernon uses all of these words to demean uh, the magical folk, and he'll do anything to demean them. And here we have someone using muggle, and why can't we just call them non-magical folk? I mean, why do we need to create a title for this? Racism. It's, it's just sort of the accepted way. Maybe in the, uh, the piece between uh, magic and, and non-magic, I was going to say muggle, <laughs> there can be some kind of uh, word change. Because as we know... Meg, the way that you use language and words really shapes how you think about stuff. Yeah. So there's just. But I mean, like, what if what if you were to talk to like a non-magical person and be like, "Oh, by the way, we call you a muggle." Like, if you told it to the nations at large, how do you think they would react? It sounds dirty when you say it. It does a little. Yeah. Like, oh, you're just a muggle. Like, it's almost setting the superiority complex in the wizard's favor because I'm a wizard. What are you? You're a muggle. Except it's widely accepted and used. Like, no one's even addressed this. it's only wisely accepted with the wizards. The muggles don't know they're muggles. That's true. After, after this, um, you know, this blow up, Petunia decides to go on her anti-wizarding rant and admits to knowing that Harry was a wizard. And she says everything that happened to James and Lily. We learn, you know, uh, a short synopsis of their past, so to say. And Harry really only seems upset about the fact that they lied about how his parents died. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty... Pretty great scene. Um, we see 
you know, Petunia, as Harry observes, you know, really release stuff that she has held in for a long time. Um, you know, she's definitely probably talked to, to Vernon about it, but maybe not as, as candidly and definitely not in front of Harry. So, I mean, it's her character's, like, breaking point, you know. She finally releases all this pent-up anger and bitterness. Why do you think it took so long? I mean, I think she didn't want, you know, or she just wasn't going to do that in front of Harry. And then the fact that, you know, someone is barging in, you know, claiming to take Harry away for the same, in the same way, you know, that, well, not in the same way, because Hagrid didn't show up to take Lily away. But she's, you know, she's seeing a parallel, you know, Harry, who she has tried to suppress, being taken away um, by something magical. It reminds her of Lily being taken away. And I think it's just too much for her all at once. It's almost like what she would say to Lily had Lily still been alive. Yes, definitely. Keep, it, keep in mind as we go on that, and there's been so much like conflict about this in the forums, the Dursleys really are, they are people. As much as they're drawn cartoonishly, they have all these deep like emotions and stuff, especially tied to magic. I mean, for Vernon and Petunia. Um, so we can, we can also read this as Petunia, she, at first she wanted to keep Harry away from it because she didn't want it touching Dudley or maybe to some extent, didn't we talk about how uh, Harry was a reflection of Lily and it was, uh, she was doing it better this time. She was going to make a normal Lily because she was so jealous. So, you know, they're just, uh, they re- they really are people. So it, it makes sense that when this, this finally you know, hit the fan that it was an explosion because the the magic secret is this like this biggest this biggest held secret between the between Vernon and Petunia. It's okay. So at one point Harry finally gets around to asking how his parents died and Hagrid gives us a little background of the past 20 years. He um between getting angry about how little he knows. Right, exactly. And he has a flashback of what happened the night that his parents were killed, the green light, and for the first time he hears a high cruel laugh. High cold cruel laugh. Sorry. And is, do you think Hagrid is triggering that memory, or is Harry finally starting to believe the past, and this is why the memory of the laugh has finally come to the surface? And another question, how, how powerful is his memory to, to remember this as, at, a one year old, at one years old? I mean, it was a, it was a terrible... Yeah, I think we, we talked about this last time briefly, yeah. I mean, how much does a one-year-old really remember? So after Harry asks, um, or after Hagrid explains what happened to James and Lily and you know, explains to him who Voldemort is, Harry asks him what happens to Voldemort, and Hagrid tells him that he disappeared, vanished, same night he tried to kill you. Some say he died. Pod swallow, in my opinion. Don't know if he had enough human left in him to die. So Hagrid is obviously talking about Voldemort's humanity, the fact that he had gone so dark he didn't care about killing anymore, but was he? I mean, Dumbledore didn't seem to confide in many people, but he trusted Hagrid with his life, as we learn in Chapter 1. So did Hagrid know about Dumbledore's theory, or is this just of the Horcruxes? Yeah. Well, I think I think Hagrid prides himself on this 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 trust, like in, all the time. We we get this even in the beginning. So I'm, I I kind of believe that Dumbledore has, over the course of a few years, let Hagrid know bits and bits and pieces, so that Hagrid could come up with this sort of theory, probably, which is a, a reformation of something Dumbledore has said before. Um, but he doesn't know exactly what's going on. And yet, because he's gotten these bits and pieces from Dumbledore, he believes that Dumbledore is the greatest wizard of all time, and that uh, you know he, that the trust goes both ways. What do you think of that? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think you know Hagrid definitely uh, knows quite a bit. Probably not everything, but he knows what Dumbledore theorizes to some extent. And you know, 
Hagrid is going to automatically side with whatever Dumbledore thinks because he practically worships him. So, I mean, he saved his he saved his career, his his existence exactly. after he it was expelled. Yeah, there's there's a, like a deep love there. I mean, I mean like a, like a like a friend love. We're not getting into like fan fiction. Right. Oh God. Oh. <laughs> Do you know oh. what that you would have just that would done? be? Yeah, that would be one scary story. <laughs> Well, Hagrid and Dumbledore. Well, that's the. Uh... It probably exists. Oh, I'm sure it does. If not, it does now. <laughs> that's, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Roll of the internet. So I really liked this line um, towards the end of the chapter. It says that Hagrid looks at Harry with warmth and respect blazing in his eyes. What do we think that means? Is it simply because he had a hand in vanquishing the Dark Lord, or is Hagrid projecting his feelings? Or James and Lily onto Harry, or does he just truly care for him already? I, I, I think there's a lot of projection there. I mean. Hagrid feels this need to care for Harry. I mean, you think about the fact that Hagrid was the one that pulled him from the rubble in Godric's Hollow. Like, he was the one who essentially, you know, saved Harry from that scene, brought him to Dumbledore. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of, you know, sense of nurturing there that Hagrid probably feels. Absolutely. And he carried him as a baby after, over yeah. over Bristol, like, after, after the aftermath. So caring for Harry is all wrapped up in the, the death of his parents. We have to also remember. So it calls up so much emotions probably every time he looks on him. Every time Hagrid looks at Harry. I'd say it's about like 50% nurture, 50% projection. Just because the first thing that Hagrid does say to, say to Harry is you look like your parents. Like, by the way, you have her eyes. So I think it's half him recognizing the people that went into making this child. And at the same time, he did care for him that first night yeah. on the way to the Dursleys. So I'd say it's half and half. Definitely agree. So at the bottom of page 58 of the U.S. edition, Hagrid is talking about Dumbledore and Vernon basically blows up and says that he's not paying for some crackpot old fool to teach him mag magic tricks. And Hagrid becomes very defensive of Dumbledore and rather overdramatically, I would say <laughs> a, a little bit. Yeah. But do you, do you think that they had this relationship while Hagrid was a student or is it merely because Dumbledore is kind of empathetic towards him, being an orphan, no family really to speak of, you know, same situation as Dumbledore. Yeah, even though we don't know that. I think it has a lot to do with the family aspect. I mean, Dumbledore was drawn to him. I mean, Hagrid had, came in with not a very, you know, strong family. Um, a lot of issues that we, you know, find out later. Um, and I think that's, and uh, so I definitely think Dumbledore was drawn to him while he was a student. Then that was even... Tony's um, brought on his gamekeeper. Yeah. And then for the next 45 years, think about it, Hagrid's old. Hmm. He was at school Is in Baltimore. Is he that old? He was at school in Baltimore, was. That's true. Yeah. I mean, they've had time to be buddy-buddy for a long time. Yeah. And have gone through a lot of things together. I mean, the first the first um, part of the war. Right. Right. Lots of brandy has been consumed in the cabin. Mm. <laughs> uh, shameless plug, for all your fanfiction needs, go to MuggleNet Fanfiction. <laughs> you have just started a new fan fiction <laughs> yeah yeah Rosie's gonna be very happy about that oh boy <laughs> yeah Brandy in the cabin <laughs> no but in, in all seriousness though they are so close and I think Dumbledore represents a, a father to Hagrid uh, you know not the little father who could balance on his leg because he was so f***ing huge but the uh, <laughs> Whoa. the, uh, the uh, you know a, a real father like the, the model of intelligence and, and you know Ever since he was thirteen, Hagrid uh, Dumbledore was was helping him out. Like that's just that's just great, and I'm sure James and Lily 
uh, Lupin and Sirius were there along the way. I want I want those stories someday, but you know, clearly they have this they have this great bond, and we we see it here. And that I think Harry aside, Dursley's aside, that's why any sort of insults Albus Dumbledore, Hagrid's going to go ballistic. Yeah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So the ne- So the next thing that happens after, you know, Hagrid kind of thunders at Vernon about this. He brings his umbrella around and there's a flash of violet light, a sharp squeal. And the next second, Dudley was dancing on the spot with his hand claps, uh, clamped over his fat bottom, howling in pain. So uh, Dudley now has a pigtail and Hagrid's umbrella, as we touched on quite earlier, is obviously his wand is in there. Yes. How do wands work after they're snapped? Ron's never really worked properly after after his broke in the Chamber of Secrets. Although, spoiler warning here, because Dumbledore has the Elder Wand, did he repair it for Hagrid? I mean, there's there's definitely something really strange going on. I mean, we'll talk about this a little bit in the next chapter, but Ollivander like, pretty much freaks out, you know, at the thought of Hagrid maybe still using his wand after it snapped. But I think... It's a good point you bring up about the Elder Wand, you know, and it's something we we don't know. Uh, I wish we knew more about, you know, what extraordinary capabilities the Elder Wand had, um, you know, what it really could do. But, I mean, it, I think it's definitely possible. Well, I mean, Harry rep- repairs his wand with it, so... Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That, so, was, a ni- that was a nice narrative closure, but it was kind of... That was that was a, a bit dramatic. But it did, it only, did it only work because, you know... Harry was the. It was they were both his wand. I don't know. Oh wow, we can we can really talk about that when we talk about wands <laughs> in the episode. <laughs> he's expelled and can still do magic. And um, I know Hagrid. The only reason like people don't know he's doing magic still is he tells Harry, "Don't tell the people at Hogwarts I'm doing magic." What does this mean for other expelled students at Hogwarts? I mean, can they get their hands on someone else's wand and just continue wrecking the world? I mean, we have a bunch of it like, like, people expelled from school at 13 running around with wands and magic powers. Well, that's an excellent point, Meg, because it sounds like if you're expelled from Hogwarts or your magical school, your life is, like, ruined or something. You can't what, – what, what, what exactly do you do? Because there's a ton of legal stuff attached. 
but you can still do magic and no one will well, know because you're if as long as you're over but age. the ministry well, would be able to trace it i would think i was just gonna say that because why oh. why doesn't an owl or something get sent to that hut on the rock because harry's in that room because harry's in that room and they know hagrid isn't supposed to be doing magic hmm. well i think that also has to do with you know dumbledore's ability to kind of weave about the legal system as he wants. So. Oh, oh, brilliant. Brilliant, Caleb. That's probably that I would say that's it. Otherwise, it's an oversight. Yeah. I'm still interested in what the other expelled students are doing. Do they have to go to the muggle world? I mean, well, your, your, wand is, your wand is broken or maybe yeah. just in this one case, but you can still use someone else's wand, which would um, in theory be can... illegal, but I don't know. True story. But still, do, if you're a dark wizard who's expelled for being a dark wizard and you steal someone else, I'm sure there's a lot of people in Azkaban for this oh, problem. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, that's a great point. It's something I've never thought of. But, you know, so I think more than more, they would much more likely to go rogue than try to find some, you know. Like become an accountant yeah, exactly. or a security guard. <laughs> I, I would. I mean, if it was me, I would. <laughs> like, True story. I mean, guys, Hogwarts can only have so many gamekeepers. <laughs> <laughs> Build Hogwarts, become gamekeeper. Yeah, but I, I like that you brought that up. I've never thought of that before, but a serious issue. And then what, like, what about offenses in the in the Wizarding World? They can't send everyone to ask a man for the smallest offense. You you, you pay a fine, I, I assume. It's yeah. probably a fine or a few days in, in ask a man. Let us know it, in the comments. That's right. So then I started thinking about Dudley and his pigtail. Where did they take him to get that removed? Wait, before before we. Just the hospital, I guess. But before we do that, think about this. Hagrid comes in, barges down the door, yells at the family. That he crushes their uh, Vernon Dursley's gun in half. And then he attacks his son, his 11-year-old son. And isn't this child abuse? Isn't this answering child abuse with more child abuse? I know, it's, I know, like, I know we, we read this scene and it was totally funny. But let's, let's look at this seriously. Isn't, did, do we think he acted a little bit too... Partially with uh, with Dudley, who who then had to have that tail for a month. Well, doesn't this just add to the to the idea that the Dursleys are cartoons? They're cartoons, but they're also real people. Think about think about the implications of, of what Hagrid did in this moment. I think that maybe in his eyes, this is in some way a punishment to them for not sharing with Harry everything that he believes they should have. Is this a Muggle hate crime? This is yeah. a, this is a Muggle hate crime. Yeah, and it also it also plays into you know Hagrid's in general his impulsive nature. I think. Yeah. Now, now, did any of you guys think about like the the emotional repercussions of Dudley when reading this the first, second, or forty second time? I, I certainly no. didn't. I feel like I feel no. like that's the Not at that's all. the brilliance of, of Joe as a, and writing this narrator. We we're like told to hate the Dursleys for three chapters, and then this <laughs> happens, and then we just don't like. We don't even care. You. What, so, why don't we care? Because I think we're made to not care about the Dursleys. I think that's kind of the point. It's the I think that's, that's just how she writes them. Yes, yeah, I think it's like you said, it's the brilliance of her it's writing. A, a certain mastery. So we have to, I'm just saying, like, as we go forward, we have to be aware of when we're being uh, sort of... Played by Jay. Yes. She's very deceptive. <laughs> Played by Jay. Played by Jay. She's very deceptive. Sweet. I'm on a first name basis, let me say. Lucky you. I know. I try. It's just, it's just something I like to be aware of. And if anybody out there, you know, I'm, I'm on Dudley's side in all this because in the next chapter, and a few chapters later, he's also he's still freaking out. This, this kid is emotionally damaged not only by his parents but also Hagrid. 
I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> Guys, come on. It's not that out there. So right here at the end of chapter four, um, you know, after Hagrid asks him to please, you know, don't tell anyone at Hogwarts that I did this magic, Harry immediately agrees. And being the ever-curious lad, he does ask Hagrid how he got expelled, but Hagrid completely dances around the subject and ignores him completely. I mean, I think it's just, obviously, with, with the subject, I mean, Hagrid knows, obviously, that it has something to do with, you know, the start of uh, Voldemort's story, at least at Hogwarts. Um, and it's not something he's really, and it's, I mean, it's certainly embarrassing, you know. He doesn't want to, like, get into this really, um, st- this this story in particular when he's just now getting to know Harry, I'm sure. Begin discussing why he was expelled. You have to get into the story of the Chamber of Secrets. And, you know, even though Harry deals with that when he's 12, I don't think he's ready for it as an 11-year-old. Be like saying, oh, you're a wizard. By the way, there was this kid and he killed a girl in a bathroom. It's it's a little much for your first day on the job. And then we'd be combining also book two with book one, and yeah, I'd be no good. He would have ruined the second book for us. Yeah, exactly. No, that's true. <laughs> Spoiler warning. That's wow. true. But Joe was Joe was uh, planning the series from even this first book. She must have been putting all her cards in this. <laughs> Damn. Again, brilliant woman. Yeah. That that's the that's the end of chapter four. Hagrid and Harry go to sleep, um, with promises of going to buy school supplies the next day. All right, so then we finish up Chapter 4. We move into Chapter 5 um, when Harry starts to get more into the wizarding world, Diagon Alley. Do you guys remember that? I'm just... Yes. We do. That was lovely. Thank you so much for that memory, Noah. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> my eyes, guys. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so the I thought it was really interesting when um, the chapter opens up. You know, Harry's waking up. Um, from what um, what an eventful night, and the first thing you know he immediately thinks is it's all just a dream, and this is you know used in a lot of um, literary works. You know this idea that something great happens or just something huge in general, and I think that's why it connects with the audience. It certainly did with me. You know our own desire to escape um, to a fantasy to get away from reality, um, and that's definitely what Harry's going through. You know even though his his is real. Uh, did you guys catch on that any? I mean, honestly, I can say that I remember dreaming vividly about the Wizarding World for quite some time during and after uh, reading the book. So I can easily see how Harry would think this was a dream, but lucky him, it wasn't. And of course, as you said, Caleb, it's a, it's kind of a narrative convention. Often the, the young boy, as it were, launches into this new world and he becomes the hero of this of this world. So we're automatically drawn in because we sort of we know the part. We kind of know. We we of course we didn't know exactly what to expect, but we've we've been this track before, you know. I think it also starts to place an emphasis on Harry's dreams, which you know becomes so important later on through the series. So already we have the Wizarding World associated with dreaming. So when Voldemort starts infiltrating them later, I mean, this could possibly be the briefest hint of foreshadowing. Dreaming, oh. Mm. That's great. Yeah. That's a really Graceful. good point. Yay. <laughs> no, there are, there are a few dreams throughout the book. Uh, there's, uh, and, you know, these are just perfect places to close read. Just take the passage and analyze, you know, kind of what it means going forward. Yeah. Because, I mean, we already have, we already have associations. He thinks he's dreaming, but it's real. 
So later, um, you know, in book four, the dream he has of um, Wormtail and Voldemort talking, he, we can automatically assume this is actually happening. This is not a dream. Then there's, an, there's another one, in the, actually, in this book where I think Draco turns into Snape, who turns into Quirrell, and we'll, we'll get to that later, of course. But dreams feature very highly in, the, in these books. They're, they're kind of rare, but uh, yet again, great places to analyze. Definitely. But, you know, as we, as we know, Harry realizes quickly that it was not all a dream. You know, he finds Hagrid still there asleep on the couch. And, um, you know, they, they get into this conversation that we touched on a bit earlier. Um, you know, Harry's asking about the whole relationship between the wizard and muggle world. And when he's talking to him about it, Hagrid basically says, you know, we're best left alone. Um, speaking about the, the wizarding world. You know, is this, you know, something we've kind of talked about. Is this something he gets from Dumbledore, like most of his other viewpoints? Or um, does, does Hagrid just have this somewhat cloaked disdain for... Um, some of the muggles that he's encountered. Yeah, I, I think definitely. I think to some point, this is just Hagrid being Hagrid. He's a pretty independent dude. Um, although I, I do have to wonder if somewhere deep down, Hagrid has a little bit of prejudice against muggles. Not all of them, of course, but ones like Vernon or those who would um, kind of misuse and abuse the wizard's gifts, be asking all the time for help. I mean, if we're calling uh, Vernon the great muggle... Um, is he possibly like the muggliest of the muggles then? And can you measure how much some, uh, like how much of muggle someone is? Like, is it a scale from one to 10? Like, are you only a five on the muggle scale? Well, we already know he can do magic. <laughs> someone should, someone should make a fan art of a muggle scale. Like what, what, what is, what, how do you quantify it? I want to see it. Perfect. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> he only dislikes muggles like Vernon. And I'd say... Vernon is a very muggy muggle. Oh, the muggliest. <laughs> He's the muggliest of the muggles. The muggliest. So, I mean, but if someone, if Hagrid were to meet the Prime Minister, who we know gets along fairly well with the wizarding world, do you think he'd be okay with that guy? Yeah. I, I, yeah, more so, I think, yeah. Yeah, definitely more likely. Yeah. Okay. Probably, prob- maybe uh, more so parents of muggleborns, with, yeah. witches or wizards, who are more apt to, like, accept the, the community. Like like Hermione's parents, yeah. Um, yeah. What about and what about squibs? What about where do they rank on the scale? Do they have? I know they can't do magic, but maybe they have some slight, minute affinity to it or something, or maybe some extra sense. Maybe they can see where the leaky cauldron is, whereas other. Well, I think they can. I think they can sense magic, or they can see magic, because yeah. again, you know, Mrs. Fig can see things from book five. Do you think some muggles have the same affinity as a squib? Um, I hate to say this, but, like, people you call to have your force in dread, like the 1-800 hotline. <laughs> like, if there's... What, are they a number two on the muggle scale? I mean, gotta think. Do, do muggles have wizarding tendencies while wizards have muggle Meg, tendencies? I, I hate to tell you, but a lot of that is fake. I'm pretty sure. But <laughs> but I think that's, that's an interesting point. <laughs> there's one out there. She is not ever gonna take Trelawney's class, obviously. <laughs> I'll just call the one eight hundred hotline. She'll do my Perfect. Hotline. There you go. I think I think definitely muggles. You know, some muggles have a this extra sense, and maybe this accounts for some of the the abnormal stuff and the, the sensations. No, actually, I would say in the Harry Potter universe, if we were talking about it real, I would say that all those uh, those fake hotlines and those uh, those people who can read your fortune and talk to dead people, they're probably wizards and witches infesting the Muggle world and making a lot of money because of it. 
So John Edwards is a is a wizard. <laughs> if Harry Potter is real. <laughs> okay. And he can just oh, talk obviously, to, obviously he's it's not real. real. Right, right, right. Wait, he's yeah, not real. Exactly. No one told yeah. me this. He can talk to all of your dead relatives because he's made portraits of them. Special vi- <laughs> visiting privileges to uh to Hogwarts. Go into the Dumbledore's office. Is that what you're saying? Would you, only for Speak Hagrid. The... Oh, okay. Tangent. Okay. So as we, moving on. <laughs> a, a, after we have this conversation with Hagrid and Harry, um, they start start off on their journey. Um, you know, they're heading toward London, and even though you know he's realized that it's not a dream, Harry is still somewhat doubting magic. Um, but there's this really great quote that I caught this time. Um, it says he couldn't help trusting him. Um, him being Hagrid. And I think this this really starts to set up the sense of trust that Harry carries throughout the series with Hagrid. You know, despite him appearing and acting rather reckless, which is how how many others view him in the series, oftentimes rightly so. Um, but you know, though he he has these lingering doubts, you know, Harry, Harry Harry's trusting Hagrid with this you know this story. I I thought this was a. Uh, I mean, do we really want kids following and trusting big? large men who are hairy and have weird things in their pockets. I know it's, I know it's a fantasy series, but mm. it, it, there is this element of he is, he's probably 50. Uh, Harry's like 10, 11. Oh, oh no, my, my apologies, 11. And look, looking at this objectively, it is a little weird that we have this, this kid, of course he's going to trust him because he's haggard and he's trusting him. He's a wizard and, and he has magical powers, but you know, there is a little, a little weirdness here. <laughs> For me, just having reading it now as a uh, as a twenty one year old, I wouldn't want my kid going off by himself with a little uh, with this big guy. Of course, I'd, be, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think for Harry, Hagrid is a real like first magical thing that he encounters, and so I guess what I mean to say is he's the only thing, at least in the start, really grounding him to the wizarding world. And to not believe and trust Hagrid would mean that he doesn't believe or trust in magic. And he has kind of wholeheartedly jumped headfirst into that. So I, I feel like they're synonymous with one another for Harry. And kids just, of I course, mean, are trusting. Yeah, I mean, I find it odd, though, and I, this, again, goes straight to her writing, that we're encouraging, straight from an abusive household, that you go with the first stranger who gives you the sense of support. Yes. I mean, it's just interesting that that's the... Um, metaphor she's giving us right now and of course we don't even we don't even think about the implications of this kid going off with some random dude uh a big dude because yeah. the way she's written it yeah. exactly i mean she writes it in a way that we we have a lot of trust in hagrid but if again if this was in another medium say we look at the film without um with a different point of view we'd see a young boy go from an abusive relationship guy burst into his house tells him you know, you're special, you're, you're great, I'll take care of you, and immediately goes with him. It, it's very interesting. And abuses his stepbrother, who he hates. Yes, exactly. So you get out of abusive relationship, you go with the first guy who hurts the people who are abusing you. Yes. Again, it conjures up, what if the Malfoys were the first person there and just killed all the Dursleys? Like, would he have gone with them then? And then he would have been in Slytherin. And then he would have been in Slytherin. Possibly. Different book series, part two. Fan fiction. Go there. (laughs) (laughs) We're giving so many great lead-ins to fan fiction. Oh, yeah, we are. (laughs) We love them. We love them so much. You can do so much there. 
<laughs> so, uh, <laughs> all right. So we uh, finally we get you know into part of the wizarding realm. We we get into this weird place of limbo, the leaky cauldron uh, that the Muggles seem to seem to pass by, and Haggard and Harry slip in, and we meet all these people who are, you know, of course, in the know of how uh, of Harry, and you know, are just dying to meet him. And we finally meet Professor Quirrell. Uh, okay, there's Quirrell. a lot more time. Say what? Right, right, right. There's a lot of time spent characterizing him, and I, I didn't catch it the first time I read it, I realize now, but I obviously did now. Um, did you find him suspicious the first time you read it, given that there's so much time spent on him compared to, um, you know, Doris Crockford? No, not suspicious. Um, I think that he was focused on because he's a part of Hogwarts, but... I did wonder afterwards, kind of reading it this time around, if he was already possessed by Bold- by Voldemort. Do we do think, we know when I that happened? That. I think we. It, I think yeah. It's it was when he think, did his travel. Yeah. Hmm. So previous to this, the previous summer yeah. or whatever. Okay. When he had that unfortunate encounter with the Hag and the vampires, which probably didn't happen, it was probably just Voldemort messing with his soul and stuff. But <laughs> I just thought it was really interesting that the very first kind of room where Harry enters, where there are which is in Wizards praising him. Voldemort's there <laughs> in the very first room. How crazy is that? Yeah. Oh. Think about that. So, you know, Joe's tying this whole thing from the very beginning. And, of course, we're not going to suspect uh, Professor Quirrell because he's uh, he's the most harmless-looking guy on the planet. Yeah, so, and then we get to, you know, we get a little bit more. Um, we finally get into Diagon Alley. After Harry gets a glimpse of all the amazing shops, he finally gets to... To Gringotts, and he gets to his uh, uh, his um, his vault, and is so wealthy, has all of this money. Um, we we know from a two thousand interview um, with AOL that um, that uh, James has wealth from his family. Uh, most of their time, you know, before they died, was spent in hiding, and they died at the age of twenty one. So you know, they didn't have much time to build up any other money. So, do we think that the wealth is just? an easy out for, uh, for rolling to, you know, make sure that Harry has money whenever he gets to the wizarding world, since he, he really doesn't have any other way to you know, have a source of, of money. Yeah, I think definitely, especially way, especially knowing the way that, um, the way that Joe grew up herself. I, I feel like if she had made Harry, you know, uh, defeated and bullied and beaten down for so many years, and on top of it, he couldn't buy any of his books to go to this wonderful, magical school. Yeah, throw the kids some nuts. I, I f- yeah, exactly. I mean, I think she did this just to make it a little easier for Harry. No, otherwise, how would he get there? Vernon wasn't going to pay for it. So. It also sets him up quite comfortably for a seven-book series. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Does not have to get money anytime soon. <laughs> I, think, I think, too, it also makes him, truly makes him more empathetic and understanding towards other characters in the book because in a way, you know, he grew up having nothing and then, so he understands that and he doesn't really, he doesn't take the money for granted. Very true. Absolutely. Whose vault is 713? Mm. I don't know. They, they visit that together and I, I don't know. Do we Such know? Such a mystery. I love that. Um, you know, the first time I read it, I was so intrigued about what was going on there. I found that part just written, uh, it was written so well to really keep you guessing. And, and we'll little did we know, we figured it out, it, it was just a cardboard bag. 
That's it. It was just a paper bag, and Hagrid is bringing this special paper bag to Dumbledore. But do we think that maybe that's like a Hogwarts vault or something? Like a special shared vault? No, or I don't it, think or... it's Hogwarts. I think it's Dumbledore's. You think so? Is it the headmaster vault? Do the headmasters have their own vault that they can pass on relics to the next one? I don't think Dumbledore would trust that in anything that wasn't completely his, given what we know it is. Only, only well, Hagrid. Uh, well, only Hagrid has access to a secret vault. Right. Right. But that's through the letter, so what could the letter have said to let him into the vault? Also, yeah, Dubs, this is Hagrid. That makes me think something else. Like, there's oh, like, or wait, obviously, was it, was like it a in the Muggle world, we have we have this worry of forgery. Um, but like, how would that not have been a suspicion? You know, but guys, what if the letter wasn't from Dumbledore? What if, what if it was from Nicholas Flamel? Doesn't it say in the book it's from Dumbledore? Well, it's yeah. from Dumbledore, but it doesn't necessarily say that the, the note was written by Dumbledore. Yeah, well, or that's maybe true. both of them signed it. Maybe it was written together. It says I've also got a letter here. From Professor Dumbledore. Right, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. But I think, you know what I'm saying? I wouldn't be surprised if they both contribute like a signature to it, that it was also from Nicholas Flamel to some degree. Because obviously, Dumbledore and Flamel are in like uh, agreement as to how the stone is going to be treated at every stage of the process, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe. But then again, that would have also clued the goblins into what is in there. And even though I don't think there's a worry of the goblins turning oh. it over, I don't think Dumbledore wants the goblins to have any inkling of what's in there. That's They're pretty that, greedy. That's an excellent yeah. point. Excellent point. I concede. <laughs> Speaking of things to think about, um, when I was reading through this again, I noticed that they, Hagrid says that there's only one wizarding bank, and that's Gringotts. Does this mean that um, Bobaton and Durmstrang are using it as well? And isn't that a little inconvenient to put it in London then? And the goblin. It's a monopoly. Oh, it definitely is. It's they a monopoly on, on the financial financial sector of the wizarding world. So is do you think um, there must that... be wizard banks in other countries? I, I that would be ridiculous if it was only in London. That's silly. Because that, that puts so much preference on the London wizards or witches and kind of downplays everyone else. Is you have to come to me for your money. It's the British Empire all over again. Well, yeah, well, that's a, actually a really good point with the British Empire. Um, but I think, I mean, I think we can assume there, there are other branches because we know that, um, is it Charlie that works for, I can't remember. Oh, right. Yeah, is working in the, like, yeah. um, with the bank in Egypt or something like that. Oh, right, yeah, no, completely. So I think there are that. definitely branches, but I still think it's an important point to bring up that, you know, Green Gods is the only bank that we ever really know about. It's like, it, it's the mothership of everywhere else. Do we right. think? Do we think that the goblins rule the the banks as a way of, uh, you know, kind of, what's the word, of appeasing them, of of witches and wizards appeasing them, of them not having uh, magic wands or being able to be a bit higher in society? So they say, okay, you can you can work the the, uh, you know, Gringotts Bank, and then you can be in control of our all of our resources, even though you are politically marginalized. Yeah, I wonder how they came to that post. That's that's true. Because they seem pretty proud of it, but at the same time, we know they can't. They can't have wands. They can't. They can't do certain things that witches and wizards can. Yet they still have magic. It would seem some of them. I bet they were put in charge of it because they have such a, a history of jewels and riches and kind of being proud and responsible with that stuff. The expertise is there, so put them in charge. Right. Harry of moves farther into Diagon Alley, and he's starting to get his robes, and uh, we get this. Uh, this meeting with Draco Malfoy, the first, uh, I guess it's his first, uh, really his first peer of Hogwarts he meets. 
Um, and it's, I think it immediately sets up this protagonist-antagonist dynamic of Hogwarts. And I, I thought about the fact that Harry grows up with mu- muggles, not aware of this idea of wizarding superiority that Draco mentions, is what stops him from buying into uh, Draco's beliefs, possibly. You know, otherwise, I thought about, you know, why wouldn't Harry think along the same lines? Or is Draco just being force-fed this information by his parents? Is he truly thinking independently? I feel as if uh, I feel as if Harry is a. We know that by nature he's kind of this he's this good guy, and he's a he just has a moral compass. But uh, I I so I'm not surprised that he didn't go along with Draco uh, at all. And obviously Draco's raising contributes like a huge amount to to the character he became. But uh, I wasn't I was surprised by that. See, I am actually surprised that you know Harry didn't try to fit in more with Draco. I think him meeting Hagrid first has a lot to do with it Um, because Hagrid is the first person who says like, look, this was your parents. They were great. I knew your parents. So Harry aligns himself with that. But I mean, Draco is someone his own age and the first instinct, you're 11 years old. You want to make friends in this new world. Like weaker wizards would go along with Draco. Yeah, I think that's really important. um, The fact that it's, it's Hagrid that he sees for, or he meets first. Um, And I think that has, um, it's, has a lot to do with imprinting on on Harry. Now um, I kind of wonder what would have happened if he wouldn't have. Well, I guess he had to meet Hagrid first, but so yeah, I guess that's. The... I brought it up earlier. What if the Malfoys had been there first and had actually yeah. like been nice? Would he have? Would we have a completely different series where Harry is a Slytherin and goes off and kills all the Mudbloods? Alternate great, universe, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did uh, notice something at the at the bottom of page seventy seven. We get our first look at the Hufflepuffs, and I have to say that, you know, Joe sets them up right from the beginning as being a really awful place to be. And quite honestly, before Pottermore, I thought myself to be a Hufflepuff, um, but now I have embraced my Ravenclaw nature. And why why is she doing this? Why is she setting them up to fail right from the start? I don't know, but as a Hufflepuff, I'm really offended over here. <laughs> mm, yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I'm... I'm not a Hufflepuff, but I agree that she does you know, sort of set them up to, to fail later on. It's really unfortunate. It's basically the derp house. It's pretty much the derp house. Mm. But I mean, they do say that they take the rest, but that doesn't mean that they're awful. It doesn't mean that they're bad people or they're stupid. Yeah, or... I, and I think that's something we're definitely going to be able to, to jump into a lot, especially when we hear that first Sorting Hat song. Oh, I'm so excited for that. That'll be great. <laughs> Um, I mean, I guess it's another redemption thing that could happen. I mean, we have Tonks later on, who's a really strong Hufflepuff. So we have everyone else redeeming themselves. Why don't we just redeem the whole house of Hufflepuff? That will be one of our goals. Yes, that? I, I buy into I, that. I can work for that. <laughs> and and sort of the last uh, you know big thing we get in this chapter is um, the meeting with Ollivander. And we're going to talk about wands a little later. But one thing I kind of want to bring up in the context of the story is... Now, wand magic is, I just, I love it so much the way uh, JK is so detailed with it. And it's something even more elusive and enigmatic than normal magic. And it's very clear that the tie between Harry and Voldemort's wand is going to be really important. I mean, do we think Ollivander is more fascinated about the power a wand can exhibit when he's talking about what Voldemort's wand was able to do than if it is used for good or evil? Are those who work with wands so wrapped up in the mysterious magic of them that they are removed from from these absolutes? I think that's that's exactly right, because remember that line when uh, Ollivander is sending Harry off, uh, Voldemort did great things, terrible, but great. 
And uh, as we know, when Harry first sees Ollivander, he's kind of spooked a little bit because he's uh, there's something a little off about Ollivander. And I, I, I agree with you, Caleb. I see him as this person who just sees power and the possibilities and maybe doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't really consider good or evil because, I mean, let's face it, his family has been making wands for centuries and he's seen, like, rises and falls, but the, the things that remain are these, these like, the, the power, you know, like the shifts in power. And that's, a, that's probably more interesting for him. And I think that maybe he isn't exactly, I mean, do we know that he's powerful? Maybe he's a power seeker, and that's why... No, he's a power seeker. That's what I'm saying. Like, and he, he's, he watches it. He's an observer. And he wants it for himself, but I don't think he'll ever no, be No, no, to... not Ollivander. You think Ollivander? You don't think so? No, no, not at all. I think he's just... I think, I think he's in awe of power. He's an well, I think exactly. he, I think he finds glory in being the influencer or the starter of power. Mm. Oh yeah, absolutely. That might even be why he suggested this wand with the same core, because maybe he, you know, or on the other hand, maybe he wanted to protect Harry and he knew something about this Priorian Cantantum and wanted to, you know, protect Harry later on. But if he didn't know about it, maybe he just wanted, you know, to see what kind of crazy stuff would happen if these yes. two wands were to battle. I think that um, Ollivander is kind of working. Again, I'm going back to other literature, but is the Tiresias from uh, Oedipus here. He's kind of giving the prophecy that these two wands are going to have a showdown. Tiresias, And yeah. it's self-fulfilling. Yeah. And he, he's basically giving you, you're going to have a showdown. And Harry has this mentality from the first minute he gets his wand that, oh, this wand is a brother, and I'm going to offset it. So, I mean, he's setting them up for the final battle right now. Yeah. Really in connection. And, as, and Tiresias is, is blind. And uh, we can say he's also like kind of the ultimate observer, and yes. it kind of plays mm-hmm. a separate part. And Ollivander, uh, by the same token, is Acts just the same way. Yeah. Oh man, I love this analogy more and more. I love it. Yeah, he's totally Yay. the Tiresias. That's and so just great. Like, Absolutely. And just like Tiresias, he gives the, uh, you know, he gives the prophecy and then lets the characters do what they want with it. And this actually spins them out of control and makes them actually, uh, you know, act in favor of the prophecy, even at their own peril. So maybe he's exactly. so he's doing this to Harry and talking about the story because he just wants to see all the crazy stuff that will happen. He's just he's he's completely in awe, and maybe that sort of goes against him in the seventh book when Voldemort just kind of grabs him out of behind the scenes and just uh, what's going on? Why? You're not supposed to interact with the with the person observing all this, and he's actually just dragged into it. Yep. Voldemort rebels on every level of the literary stage. Let's face it. <laughs> No literary morals, this man. <laughs> Doesn't respect the function. Yeah. Ah. So I, 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 I was wondering about, um, there's a line here that says, he says that he remembers every wand he's ever sold. How is that possible? Does he just have a fabulous memory? Man, of I don't he... know, but I, I want it for, you know, when I go back to school, like, geez. <laughs> well, we've said it. Does he OD on memory charms? Witches and wizards yeah. have excellent memories. I'm telling you, slightly better than humans. Maybe it's just that it's that you know, just intrinsic ability that comes with the the um, wand working boy? working with wands. Yeah, I mean, and you think about like anything with like in anything in literature, those like characters that work in some way with prophecy or something like that, they usually are just like they have that capacity. And and keep in mind that that Ollivander has grown up with this all his life because it's part of his family, so. I wouldn't be surprised if he's just, he's gone over these facts over and over and over in his head compulsively. And uh, also the way he, he chooses uh, 
you know, what wands are good, or the way he tries to select which wand will go for each, you know, young witch or wizard is based very much on the personality of those characters. So I, best, I bet he has a heuristic for certain wizard families, and he can just snap to it really quickly. And maybe all the Malfoys have a certain kind of uh, thing with their wands, like uh, dragon heartstrings, or, you know, you know, you know what I'm saying? So he can instantly do that. That's why he can see Harry and remember the parents and, and the qualities that he sees reflected in the child, and then sort of know pretty much what wand they had, and then it snaps because he has an excellent memory as well. Hmm. Now that makes sense. I was actually very proud of that. I'm just... <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Round of applause for Noah. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it enough for myself. Don't worry. Okay. <laughs> so that's the end of Chapter 5. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Chapter 6, The Journey from Platform 9 and 3 Quarters. This entire thing will be in a British accent. Anyway, so... It all starts. Hagrid at the end of uh, at the end of the day at the in Diagon Alley tells Harry, "All right, why don't you just go back to the Dursleys? Just uh, wait for your here's your ticket. I'm not going to tell you anything about how you can board the train, but I'm, I'm sure you're going to be fine because you're 11." <laughs> so, so Harry's waiting there for a month, and during this entire month, uh, Dudley remains with his tail and is actually scared at the sight of Harry. He shrieks. Uh, and the Dursleys are actually very cold to him because ever since this thing happened, they, they literally hate him. They, they're ready, waiting for him to go. And, you know, Harry remarks that it's better than it was before. They're not making him do horrible things. But at the same time, it's kind of cold and distant, and he, wish he wishes he had some connection. So there's this, there's this one scene on page 89. It's like it's the first page or the second page. But uh, Harry comes in because he has to talk with Vernon about going to the, going to the train station. And uh, Dudley actually has a panic attack and just runs out of the room and he's shrieking. Now, when I first read this, this is, of course, in reference to the tale, and it's, it's hilarious. But I just couldn't help wondering, like, what is the extent of the psychological damage that Dudley has suffered for this entire past month that he can't, he's not even speaking? And uh, maybe to what degree do we think it played a role in his, like, further years of beating on Harry? I know he was already in that mentality, but, you know, it, it continued. And then in the, in the fifth book, when Harry saved him. I think, I think this was the beginning of that grand misconception that Dudley had of Harry, was that Harry was out to get him, that the magical world was out to get him, and that he had to, you know, violently protect himself. What do you think? I think if you, someone magicked a tail onto you, you might have some damage from it. I mean, yeah. It's terrible. Try to imagine sitting in your, on your butts right now. There's a tail there. <laughs> You weren't even a you weren't even a part of this. Like it was just your parents being really mean. You don't even know what magic is because, uh, like, let's let's be honest here. Dudley had no idea what the heck was going on. In as much as Petunia and Dudley did, he just thought something exciting was happening. And now he suddenly has this tail attached to him. He was this unfortunate victim. And uh, maybe you know maybe I'm a little too sympathetic to these Dursleys. Oh, I mean, if you were Dudley's age, I mean, you would you would not forget that, and you would hold that. Childlike, well, not maybe not childlike, but you'd hold that grudge for the rest of your life, pretty easily. That'd be part of your being. Like, do you remember that one time you zapped a pigtail onto me? Like, you're gonna <laughs> tell that to people. I mean, it's 
it becomes part of who he is. And I'd say that hatred for the for the magical world, it could have been the opposite way, but it's there now. I mean, he's he's scarred for life, literally. I mean, if someone did that to me, I'd I pretty much hate them. I'm not gonna lie. And hate their entire world. And he had he had no idea that it was even possible. His worst nightmare just came true. Like things he thought he could only dream about just happened to him. And he's like, I don't know what. Well, to he do was now. part way to being a pig, and he eats a lot of food anyway. So why is that his worst nightmare? <laughs> well, there's the whole thing about pork chops and bacon. I'm sure he's not too fond. Yeah. Of. You guys are so cruel, Dudley. He's just a he's just a <laughs> fat kid. You don't like fat kids. <laughs> He goes back to his bullying ways. I think he'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to hate him, but I, I just can't. So anyway, Harry manages to get to King's Cross Station after he tells uh, the Dursleys that he has to be dropped off at Platform 9 and 3 quarters. So Vernon is like, oh, sweet. This is a great, this is awesome. So he drives Harry. He picks up his school luggage, brings it to Platform 9 and 10, and then says, see you, Harry. Have a great semester. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, then, and then the card. Could you imagine... Uh... Could you imagine if the train didn't exist and Harry was just left there for an indefinite amount of time to, like, starve to death on the streets they, of London? They literally, but that's true. They, they, that's probably what they thought, to a degree. Oh they God. let him, they let him, they, he could have starved to death. So we can hate, we can hate the Dursleys now. I, I fully give everyone permission to do that because they're laughing <laughs> in the car. We can objectively say that. Yay. But, terrible. Anyway, there's a bubbling family coming by with red hair. You guys all know them. They're famous in the fandom. You guessed it. Caleb. The Weasleys. Weasleys. The Weasleys. The <laughs> Weasleys. And, uh, you know, Molly's going on about how, oh, what's the platform, kids? Platform nine and three quarters. And of course, uh, <laughs> it's perfect for us. Your accent's so authentic <laughs> now. It's very good, Molly. That show. was very good. That's right. I was, I was a British woman for a few years in London. Anyway. <laughs> so anyway, uh, Harry, Harry kindly wanders over and he asks, uh, how, do you, how do you get onto the platform? You want to know how to get on the platform? Very easy. And and she she leads him through. And I was just wondering, let's let's take a spot here. How do you think the the magic door works? We know Muggles can't see it, but how is it that nobody realizes on this day when it, like a maybe two hundred kids from London, uh, you know, come into this one station with uh, with owls and toads and various other things? I mean, is it? Do you think that there's some sort of invisibility uh, charm at work? I, I know that's not quite. Uh, that's not quite possible. Full invisibility is impossible, as we know. But a disillusionment charm, to some degree. What do you think? Or maybe it's like, uh, maybe it's like with the leaky cauldron that you can't really sense it's there. So you just kind of, for some reason, want to look away. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I was actually thinking the same thing about the leaky cauldron, and I think that there has to be. I think that there definitely is a disillusionment charm, but that can't be the only thing because, you know, as we see in book two. There's more to like some sort of opening and closing the barrier whenever you don't make it in time. Um, so there's so there's definitely something there. Um, I, I think that they rely heavily on muggles just not paying attention and not seeing. You know, it's a crowded train station. I mean, I feel like somebody has got to notice, but I mean, maybe they don't. But uh, they think it's a trick of the light or something. Maybe. Hmm. I, I did wonder, though, what would happen if a muggle were to like lean against the wall? Like if you, you I know, some people lean that. against the wall to tie their shoe, are they going to fall through? I think you have to know that there is some sort of passageway there to go through. I can't think I of think a, so. yeah, I, th- I feel like there are two tech, there are a few times, maybe in the Harry Potter series where this is, or maybe in a different series where you have to know that the, the magic is there before it'll, it'll work. Is every wizard a secret keeper for the nine and three, 
Nine and three quarters platform. Ooh, what if it? Yeah. What if it's a variation of the Fidelius charm? Oh, and their in the in their ticket, it, you know, tells them where it is. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I think so because, I, I mean, when Molly is telling him to get through, she's pretty keen on you know you have to be confident that you'll get through and not like worried about crashing in. Guys, so yeah. I think you have to like think that you know you you have to know about it. You I have mean, to know about it. It's the Fidelius charm. Brilliant, Meg. Oh, oh wow, mind oh. blown. You guys agree? at least some variation of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. It's a variation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hands down. Nailed it on the head. Also, one thing, just thinking about this that I found really strange, is that when the Weasleys are first walking up, Molly um, asks, what's the number again? Um, and then Jenny tells her it's nine and three quarters. Um, shouldn't Molly know? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, you'd think, think she'd have it memorized by which now. Which made yeah. me think, you know, maybe when Molly and Arthur were in school, it was a different means of getting in, or... This is this a is this an air, an oversight? I don't know. No, but going with our theory before, this is or is she saying it to make the kids remember, remember it or, or know already it. ingrain it in Ginny? So when Ginny gets here, she's already a secret keeper. Exactly. Because uh. Ginny gets Ginny gets through the 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 to the platform, and she doesn't have a ticket. She has to know about it. So did she just make Ginny a secret keeper? You see, Caleb. Yeah. Huh. Not no. Potentially a brilliant move, and we're. Using this podcast, we were finding the fundamentals of magic at the smallest level. Harry meets Ron. They, uh, they sit together on the carriage on the Hogwarts Express as it starts to go. And the trolley comes by. You know, anything from the trolley, dear? And Ron, of course, uh, he has only his sandwiches. And he says to Harry, like, oh, I've just got these. Don't worry about it. And Harry, who's never had money in his whole life, you know, he does his, he does his one thing. I'll take the lot. And he, and he, he literally does a variety of... Uh, pumpkin pasties and chocolate frogs, and uh, we know that the chocolate frogs move. We know that uh, on these on these wizard cards, we're going to see more of this. But there's like there's a sentient life within these within these things. So my this is kind of a, one of those big questions about the series. When you when you do when you magic something and you make it kind of move and, and do stuff, are you imbuing life on something? Like are you creating a sentient being who can choose where they're going to go or what they're going to do? Do they have thoughts, or are you? Uh, and, you know, maybe the same can go for wands, too, if the wand chooses the wizard. Like, are they, are they maybe copying life in a way that already exists? Or are they, are, are they creating life, which is absurd and sort of has crazy implications? I think they're making some sort of impression of life, kind of like the portraits, yeah, in a way. Yeah. Um, it, they're not creating it, but they're not... It's the ultimate form of mimicry. Yeah. It's just like the, the Geminio... Uh, charm that we see Hermione do in the in the last book. You know, she's copying something that already exists and making it something of its own. Or what if, uh, this is a thought that came to me kind of crazily, you know that when you take a photograph, you're taking a picture of the, the physical form. But let's say there's a way of taking a photograph in, in the magical world, and this takes like a photograph, or as you said, Kat, an impression of everything about that character. So you get like a copy that is like it's not life, but it is some kind of like photograph esque copy of that of that character, letting them do stuff. You know that was implied of the the object of that picture in that moment. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like it catches the emotion of the time when the picture was taken. Like it's not just a photograph of the physical, but emotional. the emotional. Yeah, like, like you're like you're taking a okay. slice out of that person and putting it in there. Yeah, 
That would explain Thought, thoughts, feelings, actions, everything. Exactly. Somehow, it, like this magic photograph senses that, and that that would also go, I guess, for the the portraits in in Hogwarts. You know, there's some kind of very deep impression that it creates some character that doesn't really change very easily. It won't grow any, but it's like it it's a uh, it's not like sentient, or it's not so, completely new. So, do you think when they leave the cards, they go to another card, or I mean, where do they go? Yeah, where do they go? That was another great question. <laughs> Is there a world for portraits and pictures? I don't know, but I mean, I mean, brother's got to take a nap, so I'm sure you know. <laughs> no, but we he's know that find somewhere to crash. <laughs> That's funny. We know that uh, with the tough life, with the to Hogwarts be a card. portraits, they can go into each other's portraits. Like the fat lady in Prisoner of Azkaban, she goes to uh, a different portrait. So there is some parallel universe of magical portraits everywhere. It's like, have you ever seen Chalk Zone? It was a TV show on Nickelodeon. Oh my god, Chalk yeah. Zone. Meg, oh. have they, has Joe created a magical <gasps> Chalk Zone? <laughs> so every picture that's ever taken and every painting, no matter what, they can all talk and hang out and go on crazy yeah. adventures. Okay, so another thing I was noticing about the cards, though, is that we know a lot of the witches and wizards, like, as the audience, we know Morgana, Merlin, all of them lovely people, um, Ptolemy. And do you think in the HP timeline that perhaps um, the muggles, they tell stories about Dumbledore and eventually Harry Potter? We, as muggles, know the witches and wizards that are mentioned by Ron when he's saying all the cards he has okay. and doesn't have. Like, they're known alchemists like, in the muggle world. Like, I've read about them in history books and storybooks, like, do you think people, muggles in the HP timeline, know about Dumbledore, but obviously as a folk tale? Or That's an interesting thought. I mean, I would hope so. He's a pretty great guy. I definitely yeah. think so. I mean, you know, like you're, we're, we're seeing these characters, um, I mean, like you brought up, Morgana and Merlin. I, I definitely would like to think that, you know, that story is going to transcend just the wizarding world. Um, he's going to be, you know, a legend some way for the muggles yeah i mean it's just interesting to see how they parallel so much like that the wizarding world influences the muggle world i'm, I'm kind of interested interested to see how the muggle world influences uh the wizarding world if it's the same way like do you have folk stories about these great muggles yeah i mean i guess that's why they teach muggle studies at hogwarts right yeah it's yeah just, it may not be as appreciated um by some as others right well great there's the end of uh end of our chapter six discussion today i think that was really great guys some good stuff brought up i'm excited to hear what the fans think so if you have a comment on anything we said or a question to ask us head on over to alohomora.mugglenet.com so this week's special feature we are looking at our special section called artifact inspection and we are taking a closer look at wands so um in chapter in Chapter 5, we, we learn a lot about wands um, and all of Vander, and we started to talk about it a little earlier, but we get even a huge, um, a greater chunk of information when um, you dive into Pottermore, um, which is open to everyone now, so if you haven't got on there, you need to quickly, because there's so much for us to talk about here. And I think the wand section is probably um, the, one of the sections that we learn the most from in Pottermore, because we learn so much about wand cores and wand woods and we thought um about talking just just about our wands that we have on Pottermore and what we know about you know some of the uh, the characteristics of those um 
wands, and we obviously, Harry's wand being the most important that we've been introduced to so far, we learned from from Ollivander getting him the wand that Harry's wand is holly, 11 inches, phoenix feather, and supple. So I'm just going to give um, a quick read of what um, Pottermore says about this wand wood and wand core. So holly is one of the rarer kind of wand woods, traditionally considered protective. It works most happily for those who may need help overcoming a tendency to anger and impetuosity. At the same time, holly wands often choose owners who are engaged in some dangerous and often spiritual quest. Holly is one of the holly is one of those woods that varies most dramatically in performance depending on the wand core, and it is a notoriously difficult wood to team with phoenix feather. As the wood's volatility conflicts strangely with the phoenix's detachment. In the unusual event of such a pairing finding its ideal match, however, nothing and nobody should stand in their way. Phoenix. This is the rarest core type. Phoenix feathers are capable of the greatest range of magic, though they may take longer than either unicorn or dragon cores to reveal this. They show the most initiative, sometimes acting of their own accord, a quality that many witches and wizards dislike. Phoenix feather wands are always the pickiest when it comes to potential owners, for the creature from which they are taken is one of the most independent and detached in the world. These wands are the hardest to tame and to personalize, and their allegiance is usually hard won. There's a lot. Yeah, it is, and I, I think I think it's great. I think the wand is, I mean, it screams Harry Potter. Yes. <laughs> even, even just what we know about him at this point, which is... Which is so little, but isn't it odd, knowing this about phoenixes, you know, reading that they're the most independent and detached creatures in the world, that we find out later that Fox is so faithful and attached to Dumbledore? Well, actually, I'm glad you asked yeah, that, Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think it just serves to magnify Dumbledore's power even more. That such an independent creature is so fiercely aligned to him. But isn't that, isn't that just like Dumbledore? Isn't he one of the most, like, independent people in the world, Dumbledore? So it makes sense that they would... Uh whole line very nicely i think it's great too because the wood really speaks of harry's parents and his life journey thus far you know it's protective it has you know owners that have a tendency towards anger which we see very briefly in the first book but obviously much more later on and how the owner must be on some kind of spiritual quest which again harry is obviously on even at this point so the wand has kind of set him up for the rest of the series like, if he'd possibly gotten another wand, I don't think he would have acted the same way he has. Like, it plays a lot into his Absolutely. personality. And I think it's I think it's great, the comment where, where it says that, uh, it says that Phoenix Feathers, uh, as the core, show the most initiative, sometimes acting of their own accord. Yeah, if you're, if you're interested about wands, there's a, there's a section on Muggle Knight called Level 9, which we've had for many years. And it's just basically sort of discussing different elements of the series, like the biggest mysteries, what's gone left unexplained. And I actually wrote a little bit about Horcruxes there and uh, Enwands. And some other members of the site years ago wrote about prophecies and time travel. It's really interesting. And I'd like to continue this discussion on Alohomora. So, you know, go over to that section and have some fun in the forums, especially considering this conversation. So I ended up with a wand made of laurel. It is 14 and a half inches long with a unicorn hair core and is supple. And I wanted to comment on the length and flexibility because we learn quite a bit about this. It's, it says that most wands will be in the range of 9 to 14 inches and they don't necessarily, the length doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the, the height or the stature 
of a person. So the bigness of the individual. Right. Right. Exactly. So I was really shocked when I got a wand that was 14 and a half inches. Yeah. I I guess you're just really assertive, Kat. (laughs) Well, anyone who knows me would agree with that. Um, Let's uh, see. And unicorn hair speaks to, uh, uh, that's also the core of my wand. But can we, can we read about that? Sure, it says that unicorn hair generally produces the most consistent magic and is least subject to fluctuations and blockages. Wands with unicorn cores are generally the most difficult to turn to the dark arts. They are the most faithful of all wands and usually remain strongly attached to their first owner, irrespective of whether he or she has was an accomplished witch or wizard. Minor disadvantages of unicorn hair are that they do not make the most powerful wands, although the wand would may compensate, and that they are prone to melancholy if seriously mishandled, meaning that the hair may die in need for placing. I think that's so cool. I, I like, I especially like the fact that like the the woods can go with the with the various core, and they together they produce some effect. That is yep. a, very complex and very cool. Yeah, and in my wood, the the laurel, it, it uh, to sum it up, it says that it it's unable to perform a dishonorable act. So I think that that really goes well with, with the. Hair. With my unicorn hair, yeah. Absolutely. I I felt like it was definitely... I feel feel this fits you really well. Yeah, I do too, actually. Yeah. Really complimentary. I completely agree. Thank you. So I guess we gotta gotta give it to Pottermore for creating such like a... With a a simple test, creating a pretty accurate, you know, wand, uh, a pretty accurate Ollivander shop, you know, and that's that's saying something. That's pretty cool. So Caleb, what's your wand? Yeah, I... I must say, I love my wand so much. Um, Pottermore got me way too excited about this. So, <laughs> so minus, minus 13 inches, ebony, dragon heartstring, and reasonably supple. Uh, supple sorry. And um, so I really like both of them, and I feel, feel that they fit me really well. Um, the ebony, basically to sum it up, is a very, um, like, follows traits of being very individualized um, and holding true to, like, beliefs. Um, which I think describes me very well. And the Dragon Heartstring is a wand that learns um, much more quickly than other types, which I feel really fits me also, because I think I catch on to things really well. Um, but I was most interested, uh, it says the Dragon Wand leads to the, uh, the Dragon Wand tends to be easiest to turn to the Dark Arts, though it will not incline that way of its own accord. I think it, I think it's really interesting because it kind of like toes the line. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which so um, sounds like you, Caleb. I think so. I think I think I toe the line between maybe not always making the best decisions at times, but I also it was very funny because the last thing it says about um, the dragon heartstring is that um, the most prone to accidents, which is so true because I am so clumsy. Um, (laughs) So I was like, this this sums me up so well. How, How tall are you, by the way? Six four. Holy oh, yeah. cow! Yeah, I, I had a sense you're a big guy. I yeah, I knew you were tall. I didn't know you were that tall. <laughs> because uh, one of the questions on the on the wand test is how big do you find yourself compared to other people? And you probably said you're taller than most people. Yep. And that yeah, so that contributes a bit. Right, right. But I said average, and I'm five eight, and I mean my wand is fourteen and a half inches. Yeah. But so right really there, is... it proves it has nothing to yeah. do with it. No, I know it's a factor. They're all factors. You're just you're also crazy assertive. But like it compensates. Yep. Well, that's that is true. <laughs> Thank you. Crazy assertive outweighs. Apparently, oh, everyone's gonna think I'm guess. a bitch now. Thanks, Noah. <laughs> no, no. It's, uh... Anyway, my wand. Uh... <laughs> okay. 
Noah's one uh, <laughs> sycamore wood, unicorn hair, like you, Cat. So we're, we're pretty much the same. The flexibility of the wand really pretty much counts on the flexibility of the person. So if you are willing to change, you know, yourself or like go different ways or, you know, something happens and you can respond quickly, you are more flexible. So I think I got one of the more flexible kinds. So it is 10 and 3 quarter inches and it is surprisingly swishy. It makes sense. I am surprisingly swishy. But uh, <laughs> I was really interested in the sycamore wand because just reading that wood, it completely captures my character. Character. Uh, the sycamore makes a questing wand. Eager for new experience and, and losing brilliance if engaged in mundane activities, it is a quirk of these handsome wands that they may combust if allowed to become bored, and many witches and wizards settling down into middle age are disconcerted to find their trusty wand bursting into flame in their hand as they ask it one more time to fetch their slippers. As may be deduced, the sycamore's ideal owner is curious, vital, and adventurous, and when paired with such an owner, it demonstrates a capacity to learn and adapt that earns it the rightful place among the world's most highly prized wand woods. So, you know, this really fits my character because I am often like, sometimes I do get bored if we're just, if I'm just lazing around with my friends. So I do like to go off on adventures and stuff because I'm that kind of guy. Um, you know, the length sounds about right. I'm of average height and, uh, no, I mean, I can be pretty assertive, but not as much as you, Kat. Well, yeah. And it does say that it's a very handsome wand. <laughs> There's oh, a compliment okay. for you. Thank you. I will absorb it. <laughs> So I, I really felt like it fit with me. So I think we can say at the end of the day, you know, Pottermore, for all the hate you've been, you might have got over the uh, over the past few months for being, uh, not having a lot of interface, this, uh, the let's say the wand test was 100% for me. I give it an A+. Yeah. Absolutely. Meg, Meg, what was your wand? How did you? Okay, so this is official. Got this today. Logged back into Pottermore. Um, I know. It's very exciting. I am sycamore with phoenix feather, thirteen and three quarter inches, and uh. slightly springy. Oh, so you share, so you share so, a, a wood I, with Noah. And I share a core with Harry Potter, so it's oh, Noah's nice. and Harry's love child wand. Wow, you should feel so lucky. <laughs> For all your fan fiction's needs, you um, go to Muggle. Well, and they fiction. look alike, so that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! But I mean, I think again, I find it one hundred percent. I kind of feel like my my wand's at this point because we have the wand that basically you know likes to rebel against its own owner and then we have the phoenix feather which is very independent oh boy and so i kind of feel like the wand is the master of me at this point like it's a it's a deadly combination but i mean i'm gonna have to work that's the great thing the wand reflects the individual you you have the power to master it whereas other people might not awesome I'm also again the height thing. This I have three and three quarter, thirteen and three quarter inches. I'm five ten, and for a chick that's pretty yeah, tall. Okay. So I so think we can that's officially say that height, height is not the not really a big concern in terms of your wand length. Yeah, it's all over the place. But like I said, this wand thing, I'm all for it. So I'm excited to hear what the what the fans have for wands and how they feel that they represent their personality. So go over to the forums, tell us, share with us, please. And if you go into Noah's Nook. You'll, don't don't worry about uh, the phallic potential phallic imagery that goes in with it. Uh, uh, oh of God! Nothing nothing terrible <laughs> to the site, but you know there are some kind of penile connections to it. One part in Noah's Nook. This is a, of course a forum on alohamora.mugglenet.com, um, where you can get a little bit more controversial. It's still academic, but you can you know push the envelope a little bit. So if you want to have that discussion, I'll be there. And now it's time for Noah's posed question of the week. 
which I think I'd like it to be a continuation of what we were discussing earlier. Now we know now with wands, chocolate frogs, and uh, you know chocolate frog cards, the the portraits at Hogwarts, uh, there there seem to be all these different ways in which uh, magic creates life or it copies life. Um, you know we know that with the let's let's consider the the portraits in the Hogwarts headmaster's office where you can talk to past headmasters and they seem to have very much of their character, but they're dead. So, to to what degree can magic create life or copy it, and you know, what are the implications of this? What, what do we sort of do with this? So I'd really like to hear what you guys think about it. Um, you're going to be able to comment on alohamora.mugglenet.com right on the front page. And we're going to read your comments on the next episode. Great. And we want to thank uh, Meg for being here. And if any of you fans want to be on the show, there's several ways that you can get on the show. Um, the first one is by submitting content on the Alohomora website. Um, you heard that we read some of the comments from fans today. If you do that and you you know, comment constantly and create content, we're going to notice you and we'll ask you to be on the show. The second way is you can email a clip to us at alohamorapodcast at gmail.com of yourself analyzing a part of the Harry Potter series. Please note that you need to have um, appropriate audio equipment and the ability to record yourself. Get those clips in. We're eager to hear them. And uh, Meg, would you like to do a shout out to anybody in particular? Um, hi to everyone from Muhlenberg. I miss you guys. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, my Muhlenberg. And just as a reminder for you guys, uh, a couple of places you want to find us on the web, our website, alohamora.mugglenet.com. Uh, make sure you're following us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is alohamoramn. So M is in muggle, N is in net. And of course on Facebook, facebook.com slash open the Dumbledore, or you can just search alohamora. And we recently started up a Tumblr site, so make sure to check that out where you can see um, a couple of the, the pictures that people submitted of their books and some other great um, things. So that is mnalohamora.tumblr.com. We just mentioned our email if you're wanting to try to get on the show or anything else is alohamorapodcast at gmail.com. Finally, we want to make sure everyone knows we are officially on iTunes. And thanks to all of you awesome fans for downloading and listening. We are on the homepage of iTunes for the podcast in the iTunes store. That is not an easy feat to accomplish, and that is because so many of you have been so great in downloading our show. And we just ask that you keep on doing that, um, making sure you update the podcast, listen to our new shows, and reviewing us and rating us. We appreciate it so much. We cannot be out here without you. It is because of you and for you that we are doing this. Woo! Thank you. Thank you so much. That pretty much wraps up everything we have for this show. So until next, uh, our next show, I'm Caleb. I'm Noah. And I'm Kat. Thank you for listening to episode two of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. Disco party. Is that Snape? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Have you guys seen the uh, the video of Snape? Like it's beyond too sexy with Snape. Yes, that's all. Oh god. Yes. Oh man. Yes.